Good afternoon. Hope everyone is doing well. It's officially um, Christmas season. I like the, the decorations. You guys are probably starting to get your tree up. Um, my family and I, we did something this year we've never done before. Uh, we thought it would be a good idea to go to a Christmas tree farm and cut down our own tree. You guys ever done that? You're like, no, we don't do that. Like, that's, why would you do that? Like, they sell them on your block. Like, why would you drag your four kids out into the cold with a sharp object, cut it down, drag it through the dirt, have it tied to your roof, have anxiety for two hours as you drive back to the city, hoping that it's not going to fall off your car? Like, Logan, don't they sell those on your block? And the answer is yes, they do. But we thought it'd be a good idea to, to cut it down. And actually, the part I just shared, that was the fun part. Um, the not-so-fun part was when we got it into our apartment and we realized how big the tree actually was. Uh, we cut the things, and it was like the scene from um, the Christmas vacation, you know, where the boom, poop, it, it blows out, and the tree is huge. So we're like, okay, it's fine. It's fine. It's beautiful. So we put the ornaments on. We put the lights on. And we had to go buy more lights because the tree was so big. And we're like, okay, wow, what a great tree. Until the next day when I get a text from my wife. You're like, you're not going to believe this. I come home that evening and I find the tree toppled over on the ground. Pieces of glass shattered everywhere, ornaments broken, limbs <laughs> bent this way and that, the water from the tree stand all over the floor. And as I got on my hands and knees and was picking up pieces of glass and cleaning up all the mess, I thought to myself, this is like some kind of sick and twisted Christmas metaphor. It's like... At the end of the year, we, we come and we carry with us all this weight, the heaviness, the anxiety that's been accumulating all year, and then it just feels like by the end of the year, we're just ready to topple over. It's like the stand is not big enough to hold up the weight of the tree. And of course, after this uh, happened, I was telling people about it, they're like, yeah, man, your stand is way too small. Like, what? Yeah, you're, you're, I mean, the, the weight of the tree is way too much for that stand. Like, well, thank you for that information. And I've been thinking about this because I think for many of us, as we come into the Christmas season, uh, we feel like perhaps the tree is about to topple over. It's like the, the weight of the year has accumulated, and I wonder if for us, um, our base our foundation is big enough to hold up the weight of the tree. The foundation of just be a good person just doesn't seem big enough. The foundation of just make more money just isn't strong enough. The foundation of just be a good parent or a good family member, a good brother, a good son, just isn't secure enough. Even in church, the foundation of just check all the boxes isn't firm enough. So as Christians, is our view of Jesus big enough to be a foundation even when the biggest problems of life come our way? And this is a question we're going to look at really for the next three weeks, and we're going to look at it through the lens of John chapter 1. And we're going to ask the question, what 
if our base needs to be expanded? What if we need more firm, a more firm foundation? And John is very interesting. For those of you who have read the New Testament, you know there's four Gospels. Um, three of them are, are pretty similar, but John takes a different approach. They all tell us about the coming of Jesus in different ways. John is unique. So in John, we don't get the wise men. We don't get the shepherds. We don't get the angels. We don't get Bethlehem. We don't get the baby Jesus in the manger. No, what John does is he zooms out and he says, hey, if we're really going to understand the coming of Jesus Christ, it actually doesn't start with Joseph and Mary and the census and the baby and the stable and all the songs that we sing. It actually starts before the dawn of our world. And that's where we're going to go today as we look at the big picture story of Jesus. It's not just about one character at one place in one time. John tells us the story of Christmas is the story of God. It's the story of our world and it's the story of each one of our lives. And this savior, John is going to tell us, is big enough for you to rest the weight of your life on. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. I know we don't have the screen, so maybe I thought we would use these guys. Can you grab these in front of you? Um, grab one. Uh, this is the, the NIV, which this will work. John 1, page 860. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him, all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor human decision, or, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. If we are going to have a firm foundation this Christmas season, we need to reflect on Jesus. And as we reflect on Jesus, we need to do two things. John is going to tell us to adjust our view of Jesus and then adjust our response to Jesus. So adjusting our view of Jesus, we see verse 1. In the beginning was the word. This is one of the most famous lines in the New Testament. In the beginning was the word. This would have been very familiar to John's Jewish audience. The first three words of this book are the same first three words of the whole Bible. In the beginning. 
And if you would have quoted that to a Jew in the first century, they would have known the rest of the line like that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It would be like today if I said to you, if you were a music fan, just a small town girl living in a... Yeah, you know it. Or it would be like saying to someone who grew up in the 90s, now this is a story all about how my... Pretty good. Or it's like saying to a Swifty, it's me, hi, I'm the problem. Whoa, okay. It's like that, you get the picture. Like, hey, in the beginning, John's like, I I need you to know the rest of that lyric. God created the heavens and the earth, and John is saying something very profound. Do you really wanna know about the coming of Jesus Christ? Do you really want to see the whole story? It didn't start with Joseph and Mary, the star of Bethlehem, the wise men, the shepherds. No. It started before the very dawn of creation. And when we rewind the story to eternity past, who do we see? Jesus. In the beginning, Our uncreated God was the agent of all creation. And John says that the word was with God and the word was God. And you might be thinking, wait a minute. How does that work? How could Jesus be with God and Jesus be God? You probably get this question when you are uh, reading the Bible with your kids and you're reading the Gospels and you're looking at the life of Jesus and you're saying, okay, kids, like Jesus is God. And they're like, wait a minute. If Jesus is God, why is he praying to God? Is he praying to himself? Right, we kind of get into the mystery of the nature of God. Who is this God? The word was with God, the word was God, and we get into the mystery of the Holy Trinity, that our God is a community, three in one, one God, three persons, before anything existed, our Trinitarian God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit was there, living in perfect union, community, and love. And the details of that are for another sermon, but John wants us to know that when we celebrate Jesus in the manger, that wasn't the beginning of the story. Jesus was with God at the beginning. Jesus was God. And often when we think of Christmas, we are enamored with the nativity scene, which is beautiful and it shows us God's humanity, God with us, but we have to let John balance out that picture that the nativity was was beautiful and meaningful because our God existed from the very beginning. One of the songs, one of the albums I love to listen to around Christmas is an album by Andrew Peterson by the name of Behold the Lamb. And he has this one song where he gives it in the perspective of Mary. And he says this. He says, the baby in her womb He was the maker of the moon, the author of the faith that could make the mountains move. 
Is that our view of Jesus this Christmas? The Apostle Paul said it this way, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. But John is just getting started. He said, hey, we have to rewind to the dawn of creation if you really want to understand who Jesus is. But that's just the beginning. In the beginning, he says, verse 1, was the word. And again, John is using very loaded language here. In the Greek, this word is logos. Logos. Can you say that with me? One, two, three. Logos. See, for hundreds of years leading up to the writing of the book of John, Greek philosophers had been using the word logos. So if we said in the beginning was familiar to the Jews, logos would have been very familiar to the Greeks. You see, in the Greek mind, in the Greek philosophy, they looked at the world and they say, hey, there has to be some kind of order some type of harmony, some type of unity to this universe, some type of net that holds everything together. And going back to a guy named Heraclitus, 500 years before Jesus, he called it the Logos, an impersonal structure that gave order to the universe. And if you aligned your life with the Logos, it went well for you. If you did not, It did not go so well for you, the Greeks said. It's like putting together Ikea furniture. It's like, hey, if you followed the the little guy on the directions exactly, the furniture will go well for you. But if you, for one minute, think you can put together that Ikea stool on your own, it's going to be a mess. And that's how the Greeks viewed the Logos. Can we align our life to the ultimate unity and structure of the universe? If the screen was working today, I had a picture I wanted to show you of a very famous painting called The School of Athens. Uh, You can Google it later. It's by a guy named Raphael. Um, A very, very famous painting. It's supposed to depict the the most famous thinkers in human history. And you have Heraclitus. I already told you about him. 500 years before Jesus, he talked about the Logos, which led to Plato. He's in the center of the painting. And for him, the Logos is like a pattern of truth and reason. Um, Excuse me, uh, for Plato, it was um, an impersonal creator. And then you had Aristotle after him, and that was a pattern of truth and reason. And what you had in Greek philosophy was this idea of unity and harmony that, that gave order to all of life. And for us, you're like, Greek philosophy, yeah, I'm not, I'm, you lost me like a long time ago. Come back here. It's, it, it's a lot like the force. Star Wars fans, it's like, it's, like a, it's like the force, metaphysical, mysterious energy created by life that binds the galaxy together. Is that better? Okay. No, okay, okay. Here's what's amazing. Here's what's amazing. John is taking a Greek idea and he's filling it with new and better meaning. He's translating the message of Jesus for the Greeks to understand. 
It's shocking. He says, yes, Greeks, you were right. There is a logos. And yes, this logos brought order and design to the universe. Yes, through the logos, you can be connected to the heart of ultimate reality. But the logos is not an abstract principle like you thought. The logos is actually a person. The Logos is Jesus. It's God who came to earth in the flesh. I love the way Sally Lloyd-Jones says it in the storybook Bible. Jesus is God's message, translated into our own language. Everything God wanted to say to the whole world in a person. To the Greeks, he was a better Logos than the philosophers offered. To the Jews, he was the creator God from the book of Genesis. The question for us today is what is he to us? He's not an impersonal force. He's a personal God who made himself known in Jesus. That's why we get to verse 14. Look with me in your Bible. Verse 14 is so staggering. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. A person's word is the clearest revelation of who they are. So I could observe my kids. I could be like, hey, I got to figure out what my kids want for Christmas. Hey, um, I'm going to see what they like. I'm going to see what they're into. I'm going to watch and observe their behaviors. Or I could just ask them. And they could tell me in their own words. And in a sense, that's what John is saying God did. Let me tell you about who I am. Jesus is the reason of God, the logic of God. Jesus is God's definitive word about himself. Jesus is God saying, here is what I am like. I love the way Tim Keller says it. God has not given us a watertight argument to prove who he is. He has given us a watertight person. When God wanted to tell us what he was like, when God wanted to show us his heart, when God wanted to show us his character, his purpose, his will, he didn't write out an argument for us to figure out. He sent us a person, a person to be in a relationship with, to love and be loved. And again, John is using very specific language. In the Greek, it literally says that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Which, again, makes us rewind a bit in the story to the Old Testament. If you remember in the Old Testament, the tabernacle was like a traveling temple. Uh, It was like a large tent where the people would set it up and the priest would go in and meet with God. It's where the glory of God dwelt among his people, the tabernacle. And like really most religions... The temple is this kind of uh, set-apart, holy place. God is holy, so we have this special place where we need to go meet with him. But John is saying something very radical. He's saying, Jesus is our temple. When we couldn't get to God... 
the tabernacle came to us. He came and met with us. One translation says that he moved into the neighborhood. The God of the universe taking up residence on planet earth with you and with me. This is the eternal God of creation. This is his definitive word. And now he is the God dwelling with us. And do you see what John is doing? He's just saying, hey, would you just zoom out a little bit? Jesus is even bigger than you thought. He's more glorious. He's more worthy. He's more trustworthy. If we could just zoom out and see all that he is, what if we expanded our view of Jesus this Christmas? And as we do that, and we adjust our view of him, we have to then adjust our response to him. We say, what difference does it make? Well, two things will happen when we get a bigger view of Jesus. The first thing is he'll begin to confront our inconsistencies, and then he will comfort us in our trials. So confrontation and comfort. We heard from John the nature and the significance of Jesus. But when we look back through history, we know that to be true, don't we? The birth of Jesus split history in two. We measure time now based on the birth of Jesus. It was so significant. Secular historians tell us that. H.G. Wells said this, I'm a historian. I'm not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. How can it be? Jesus, born into a poor family in the middle of nowhere, no power, no wealth to a teenage mother. How could it be that this peasant was the center of history? Well, John says, listen, it's because this was the eternal word of God, fully God, Fully man, this was not an average guy. This was not a good guy. This was not an aspiring religious figure. This was God in the flesh. Come to rescue us. The author of the story becoming part of it. And which for you and I today means we have a decision to make about Jesus. Who was he really? John challenges the, the cultural assumption that most of our neighbors have. When you say, hey, what do you think of Jesus? Jesus, I love Jesus. I'm for Jesus. Jesus, loving guy, moral teacher. Uh, you know, I'm for Jesus. But if what John says is true... And what Jesus says about himself is true. Jesus can't just be a nice guy, a moral teacher who gives good advice that we can either take or leave. If John, what John says is true, Jesus is Lord, Lord of the universe. He's in charge. His word goes. So at Christmas, Jesus confronts us. What is our relationship with him like? Do we treat him as a good teacher? Or it's like, yeah, I'll take that part. I'll take that part. I'll leave this part and that part. I like this and not that. Do we treat Jesus like a life coach where we need, when we need to pick me up, 
a motivational speech, we'll go to him and let him kind of get us back on the right track. Do we treat Jesus like an insurance plan? He's a safety net. When I get in trouble, when I can't handle life on my own, Jesus is there to hold me up. Or do we fall to our knees and say like Thomas did, my Lord and my God. Because if we're seeing Jesus properly, him as life coach or him as moral teacher or him as insurance plan just won't work. So if you're not a follower of Jesus in here today, I would just ask, what if John was right? Are you willing to explore the claims of Jesus yourself? Are you willing this Christmas to open up the gospel and read? For those who are followers of Jesus, does your life reflect that he is Lord? Is the way that you live consistent with the convictions that you say you have about Jesus? So he confronts us. But after he confronts us, he comforts us. I want us to see the comfort in this. Jesus is God. Jesus made the universe. Jesus holds the universe. That means that Jesus made you and that Jesus holds you. That means that you're not an accident, that actually the eternal God knows you, formed you, cares about you, loves you, and holds you together just like he does the universe. He holds you with his matchless power. Do you know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards you right now? The, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Do you know the power that is available to you in Christ? Because he's the word made flesh, not only is his power available, but he sympathizes with your struggles. You know, so often we can, we can be struggling and we think, God, you're God. You don't understand? You, what are you like, live in the clouds and like streets of gold and the throne? And like, God, you don't get it. But actually, the Christmas story tells us otherwise. He gets it. Born into poverty, same struggles, same temptations, same pain that we feel he felt. So when we are going through it, he knows. He sympathizes with our weakness. And at the end of the day, do you know his heart towards you? How do you measure that? You ever think about that? When the God of the universe thinks of you. Like when your name pops into the heart of the God of the universe, what does he feel toward you? Maybe you say uh, disappointed maybe. When you look at the gospel you see that the God of the universe became flesh and he dwelt among us. He lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we deserved. He rose from the dead because of his great love for us. That when you pop into the heart of 
God, there is delight that he made you, he loves you, he pursued you even to coming to planet Earth, even to a Roman cross, he pursues us with his love. And he's calling us home. He's calling us to himself. So two applications for us this afternoon. First, maybe today you need to let the John's picture of Jesus confront you. Maybe you've been living with this inconsistency, what you say about God and how you're living. They don't line up. And in his grace, he's going to confront that. Or maybe this afternoon, you have been carrying burdens that were never meant for you to carry. That the God of the universe came and moved into the neighborhood, and he's available to you and to me right this very moment if we would just come to him. And maybe this afternoon, he's calling you to lay those burdens down, to drop the striving. To, to drop the proving yourself and say, here I am. My, I'm a son, I'm a daughter, I'm coming to my father open-handed. Here I am in my weakness where I don't measure up, where I'm struggling, where the, this, these weights I cannot carry, and I'm gonna let you carry them. Because you are God, I am not. So what is it today for you? Is he confronting, is he comforting? Maybe he's doing both. Let's pray together. Father, we do give you thanks and praise. You, you are God with us. The word became flesh, dwelt among us. We have beheld his glory. God, today we want to see your glory. We want more of your nearness and your presence. God, we want to know you better. So today, confront us. Confront us in our inconsistencies, our idolatry, our sin, and would you comfort us? to know that there is nothing out of your control. There's nothing you cannot carry when we bring it to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.